0: Just one week, we'll celebrate that moment. This week, I'm, I'm thankful, as we look forward to Resurrection Sunday, we don't just remember the cross, we remember the resurrection. We remember that Jesus didn't stay dead, but up from the grave He arose with a mighty triumph for His foes. And so we're thankful that we have a reason to celebrate today, a reason to be able to be joyful. In the midst of all the sorrow in the world, we're thankful that we can come back to the, the, the reality that herein is love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because Jesus Christ gave His life a ransom for many. And so as we gather here today, I want to invite your attention to John chapter 13. And a few weeks ago we covered uh, the uh, the traditional passage for Palm Sunday, which is uh, the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And we remember the hosannas that were sung during that day as we looked at uh, this passage in John chapter 12 from the Scriptures, But now we're in John 13 as we're just continuing through our journey with Jesus along the way. And we'll fast forward a little bit next week and we'll look at the crucifixion of Christ and His resurrection. But as we look here, we're reminded that Hosanna means, Lord, save us. Aren't you thankful we have a God who saves today? We don't have a God who just looks at us and says, i oh, figured out your own self. But we have a God who loves us in our condition, where we're at. And even as uh, Sister Linda just saying, even when He was on the cross, I was on His mind. He looked down through the scope of time and He saw me. He saw you and He knew that what He was doing was laying down His life so that we might have opportunity to spend eternity with Him. And today, I just want to just take a moment and be reminded of that eternal love that Jesus has for us today. Joe Wagner tells of a story of love that was kind of feigned. It was kind of a fake love, and uh, those, you remember the Reader's Digest? I remember my parents always got the Reader's Digest. How many of you still get the Reader's Digest? One, two, three. used to be a very popular thing. I remember my mom and dad always had that, and I would go back through there, and I'd read some of those sometimes. But there was a story, Joe Wagner says, he says, I was attending a junior stock show, and and it was uh, grand champion level lamb, and and this little girl had just had owned this, and she had raised this little lamb from just a, a, a wee little thing to now the grand champion. And and now at the end of the show, you know, they always have this sell, and they they sell it. And the bid started at five dollars per pound, and the little girl was just so uh, just standing there by by the lamb with those big old eyes, and tears started to well up in her eyes, and 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 so the the people looking on that day making the bidding, they began to feel a little sympathetic and so the the bidding went up to ten dollars a pound and and she grabbed her uh, her little lamb and she just hung on its neck and some tears were freely flowing at this point and the bids rose higher and higher and the more she cried the more the bids went and finally a local businessman hollered out i'll give a thousand dollars for that lamb and he won the bid that day and at the, end, at the end, all the crowd was applauding and they were all excited and they were just jubilant as this man gave the little lamb back to the little girl. Isn't that so sweet? Now here's the rest of the story as old Paul Harvey would say. She said later, she said, The prices began to get so high during the bidding that I started to cry from happiness. Happiness. She said, The man who brought the lamb, uh, bought the lamb for so much more than I ever dreamed I would get, returned the lamb to me. And when I got home, daddy barbecued the lamb and it was really delicious. (laughs) Maybe they looked at those tears and they thought, But this poor little girl loved that little lamb. You know, but God's love isn't fake. You know, we all know someone that maybe has loved a fake love, a selfish love. You know, when the world looks at love and our society is obsessed with love today. And matter of fact, if you look at the romantic movies, you can't hardly go on to the... Uh, sometimes we, we go and we we'll look at uh, like Redeem TV or some of the Christian uh, TV uh, channels that are there and, and we'll look for something good to watch and it's all these sappy love movies. I'm like, man, why can't we have a Christian movie where someone gets killed, amen? <laughs> Just kidding. Kind of. All right. And it's all these romantic movies and these sappy movies, and boy, we just like those things. There's there's cheap paperback novels that are right, and people sell millions of copies of those every year. Romance is the primary theme in entertainment and and even conversations today, but it's also big business. Newspaper columnists talk about it. Now we have uh, websites, bloggers, all of these different things, talk show hosts. They offer their expert advice on those that are lovelorn. But despite all of the talk about love, very few people actually understand what love really is. You see, the modern version of love today is unabashedly narcissistic. It's very much self-focused, and it's shamelessly manipulative. Basically, I love you if you take care of me. As long as you meet my needs, then, you know, that's when we really love each other. And I'll tolerate you. And maybe there's this, this self-gratification that goes along. As long as you take care of me, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But that's not at all how God demonstrates His love to us. You're not, not surprisingly, relationships that are built upon such selfish desires always end uh, prematurely. If a current partner fails to live up to the expectations or maybe they find someone, someone more exciting they just move on. We become takers not givers. Humility is considered a weakness and selfishness a virtue. What a sad epitaph for today's, today's thoughts of love. But in, con- in contrast to all of these things stands Christ. Oh, in just a week we'll celebrate, and this week as we look forward to the uh, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're reminded of that great love that uh, that He had as He laid Himself out on the cross. And was willing to lay down his life. Listen, we didn't have anything to offer God that was good. I didn't come along and say, "Christ, if you, if I'll scratch your back, if you scratch my back, I'll take care of this. If you take, you know, I'll be a preacher if you save me." That wasn't the deal that we made two thousand years ago. He looked at me and said, "John, you're a sinner. You're in need of a savior, and I love you enough to be that for you." You see, that's the God we serve today. The Bible talks about love, and if you put your hand in John thirteen. I then put your, I open up to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Just read this together. It, it's on the screen, but I tell you, it means so much more when you look at it in your own Bible. And you'll just take that extra effort to read along with me this morning. You see, God's love is a biblical love that seeks to build up. Instead of pursuing its own good, it pursues the good and interests of other people. Instead of seeking to have its own needs met, it seeks to meet the needs of another. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, charity here is that old English word for love here, and he says, charity suffereth, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things. It believeth all things. It hopeth all things, it endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away." He says, listen, but God's love is pure. To love like that requires above all else a humility. Only humble people can put the interests of others instead of their, uh, their own will. And that's why we see uh, the magnificent example of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 as He laid down His life. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2 says, And with all lowliness and meekness and with longsuffering it calls us then to forbearing one another in love. This is the call of God in our life. In fact, Christ teaches that those who humbly love others will be exalted. Those that exalt themselves, He said, will be brought low. Humility, not pride, is the true mark of greatness in God's economy. And so while 1 Corinthians 13 is that supreme description, the supreme example is Jesus Christ. The most significant way that He showed that He loved us was by dying as a sacrifice for sinners. Philippians 2.8 says, "And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself said, Greater love had no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us that day. When he reached out his hand and he says, I love you this much, what he was saying was, listen, I'm willing to lay my doubt life down for people who weren't even my friends, those who were enemies according to Romans chapter 5. Paul later reminds the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 2 says, And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. He said, also hath given us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. He said, listen, this is your example today, to walk in love as Christ has loved us. John, later in the epistle of 1 John, said, And hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. He said, This is the ultimate example. Jesus died for you. Not because we deserve it. The reality is is we deserve just the opposite. We deserve God's wrath. Not His mercy. We don't deserve His grace. But because He loves us, He offers us salvation. You see, in the prologue to his gospel, John informed all of those that he was writing to that there would be two reactions to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of his people, the people of Israel, Uh, would not accept him. In John 11 he says, And came to his own, his own received him not. We see that these people rejected Jesus Christ. And in those first 12 chapters, John began to uh, record the tragic story of Jesus and Israel's rejection of their Messiah. But though uh, though, through the nation, uh, though all that nation as a whole rejected Jesus Christ, there were some individuals that did receive him. And it's this little flock, this small group of people now that we find Jesus has secluded himself away. And in this place, he comes to this place and says, Listen, I'm going to spend a little time with you before I go to the cross. And these next five chapters, is really an intimate conversation between Jesus Christ and His disciples. John uh, chapter 13 and John 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. And all of these culminate right before Jesus' crucifixion as, as Jesus brings that little flock together and He begins to teach them and to guide them. As chapter 13 opens, we see Jesus' public ministry has ended officially now. And now He has issued the final invitation, and now He speaks to those in the first few verses here, and He demonstrates to them the love of God, an eternal love that was willing to humble itself, willing to lay down its life for us. And then He assures them of the hope of heaven in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. This week as I got a call about Sister Marty, my heart was broken about all that was going on and I just reassured uh, James, her son. I just said, James, I said, listen, God, God has made her a home. It's ready for her and she's there with him now. Listen, I'm thankful that we have an assurance in him. That assured hope of heaven for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But we also see in John chapter fourteen and verse twelve that there is power for ministry. In John chapter fourteen, verses thirteen and fourteen, he talks about provision for our needs. And later, we see that there is the promise of the Holy Spirit and the divine truth, word of truth, that uh, uh, through the Word of God. And so God begins to really to invest in those inner circle of men there and he begins to lay some groundwork for them for what's about to happen and he invests in their life because he loves them with an everlasting love and so with that as an introduction join with me in John chapter 13 verses 1 through 17 as we see this eternal love of God shown forth in a very tangible way today now before the feast of the Passover when Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world. He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. And after that he poureth water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with a towel wherewith he was girded. And then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not to uh, save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, and therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet, and taken his garments, and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master, and Lord, and Ye say, Well, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, and you ought also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Let's stop and pray together. Father in heaven, we come before your precious throne of grace to find help in in our time of need. Lord, we we need your help today as we uh, just desire to hear from heaven. Lord, may the words that I speak just be from you May you open our hearts that we might be controlled completely by you this morning. Our responses, Lord, that the barriers that have so uh, hindered your work in our life, that, Lord, those things would be broken down and that you would have full reign. Lord, that truly revival would spark in our hearts as we see this glimpse of your eternal love for us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being able to say that we have a hope that is sure in heaven. We look forward to being with you, but until then, God, would you just lead us now in this life here on earth. In Christ's name, amen. As we look here, there's a common theme that runs throughout these five chapters, and that theme is Christ's love for his own. He truly loved his disciples, and throughout this, we'll see that over the next few chapters, but I just want to encourage you that you can see even here at the preliminary uh, part of John chapter 13 as Jesus uh, puts on that servant's towel and He kneels beneath the feet of the the disciples. And and He does one of the most uh, humiliating tasks of any disciple. We see here our Savior who is willing to say, Listen, I love you enough to serve you. And As His earthly ministry drew to a close the night before His crucifixion, we see that Jesus sought to reassure them of that enduring love that He had for them. This love that would not stop at the moment of His crucifixion. It's not a superficial love, but an eternal love. It doesn't rest upon what we do. It's not uh, but on a volitional choice on God's part to love us in spite of who we are and love us in, in spite of what we do. Even here, as we see, this eternal love continues through rejection. Do you remember junior high Boy, that was a miserable 20 years of my life I mean three years it felt like 20 years I mean that was a, that was a tough time boy you everyone had to have a relationship and that relationship changed every week and well you'd ask a girl to go with you and, and junior high girls can be rough man I, I was so intimidated I just kept to myself I said man I, I just can't do it my wife and I knew each other in junior high and oftentimes we fought I don't I'm looking for her she must be uh, at somewhere in a uh, serving this morning and we'd often fight in junior high and boy I, we, we had had different sets of friends and they wanted that same lunch table and it was an overcrowded school like many of them are today and and i just remember uh, that that we would uh, bicker back and forth in junior high little did i know that it would turn into something much better later amen <laughs> want we'll to make sure i get that in there before i go home today but listen Sometimes rejection is part of that growing up process. Well, as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ here, He didn't reject His disciples, even Judas Iscariot. We see He was part of this intimate group here that Jesus knelt, in. He washed the feet of the betrayer. He gave him one more opportunity even to repent and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of the rejection, in the midst of those that, that, that were, would uh, betray Him later, Jesus Christ loved them unto the end. This is the time of the Feast of the Passover, which was the annual Jewish feast commemorating God's deliverance of Israel from bondage in Egypt. This name was derived from uh, the angel of death's passing over the houses of the Hebrews, which were killed uh, uh, in the uh, the Egyptians' houses. But as that death angel uh, came and saw the blood on the doorposts there over the Jewish houses, the death angel passed over those houses, and none were lost. And so from this point on, God commemorated a feast, a, a time to remember called the Passover. And this is the last divinely authorized one that we see here in John chapter 13. And from this point on, there would be a new memorial, not one where they, uh, where they were recalling the Lamb's blood that was applied to the doorposts, but the blood of the Lamb of God. It says John, Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. You see, Jesus' death on the cross, He spilled His blood so that we might have an opportunity to have that death angel pass over us and spend eternity with Him. And so this time had finally arrived. And we see that in verse 1. He says "He says in verse number 1, Now when Jesus knew that His t- uh, hour was come, that He should depart, he, he knew what time it was, and He was specifically waiting. If you remember and go back in the in the gospel, we, He had many times over said, My hour is not yet. My hour is not yet. Well, John 13 says, When He knew that His hour was come. it had arrived. This moment that He'd been waiting for, this moment of, of just obedience to the Lord, we see that the Lord... Then, in verse number 1, He loved them even unto the end. This word, uh, end, is the Greek word telos, which means perfection or completeness. And it, uh, and it signifies that Christ loved His own with the fullest measure of love. This is illustrated very well in Romans chapter 8, in verses 35 through 39. He asked this question, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that's the the answer to that question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. The Bible says that nothing, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in this imminent arrival of his own death, he could not even separate his love from his disciples. And that becomes even more clear as we go down through John chapter 17. Yet, we read even during this intimate time with the disciples, there would be one whose heart wasn't what was turned away from Christ. In verse 2, look here with me. It says, In supper being ended, ended the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. It's almost as if in verse 2 the attention abruptly shifts uh, from the brilliance of the love of God to this satanic darkness in Judas's heart, and before the final supper began, the devil had already put in his heart of Judas to betray Jesus Christ. And the contrast then is made plain: this brilliance of God's love versus Judas's hatred, and it is very stark the two that are uh, that are uh, demonstrated side by side. One is obvious hatred, which seems way out of place, but in verse number three, Jesus does something by washing the feet of the disciples, which he would uh, which would meet and, and, and offer one of the greatest injury and insult to Christ's uh, rejection. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, Jesus commanded his, uh, each of us to love our enemies. He says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You see, Jesus Christ then, said that back in Matthew chapter 5 when he began his ministry, but now at the end of his public ministry and he's there privately with his disciples and even the betrayer, he looked at Judas and he loved him unto the end. You see, he did just that. He, he loved his enemies. He blessed them that cursed them, but tragically Judas was unmoved by God's manifestation of his love for him. And in the same act that drew the other disciples closer, what we find is uh, this act repelled Judas away maybe it was Judas greed ambition that we saw previously in the gospel regardless of what it is Satan inspired this betrayal of Jesus and Judas was fully responsible for his act and as we see here Christ in his love gives him one more opportunity he says and in, in, uh, going down in the in the scripture just a little bit he says in verse number 10, Jesus said unto him, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. In verse 11, he says, For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. You see, Christ was even speaking to Judas in this moment. He said, Listen, Judas, you know who you are. You know you've rejected me. You know you've turned your back on me. And he says, Then this is still an opportunity to repent and come to, come to salvation. You see, God loved him until the end. Let me remind you that there's going to be times when Judas maybe shows his face in your life. If Jesus had a Judas, you can guarantee we're going to have some along the way too. Judas was one of his inner circle, one of those intimate 12 that he had chosen to draw close to his ministry. He had confided in him, he trusted in him, and and yet uh, Judas had betrayed him. And Christ calls us to respond then with the same kind of eternal love that he demonstrates to Judas. Are we willing to love our enemies, to forgive them when we're hurt deeply? You see, the, the peace that Christ offers overcomes hurt of this, the hurts of this world. It overcomes the hurt of those that, that are so devastatingly uh, vengeful toward us. And maybe today you're carrying around a bitterness, an anger, uh, something that uh, draws you away from the Lord. And let me just tell you, there, you cannot have any peace as a Christian until you first respond like Christ. You see, he says in Ephesians 4:32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God. For Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You see, the peace that Christ offers overcomes the hurts of this world. He says later in John chapter 16, in verse number 33, He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. He says, In the world you shall have tribulation. Doing it the world's way, you're going to have problems. Doing it the world's way, you're going to stumble through this life. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. But let me just share you with you, not only this eternal love overcomes uh, this rejection, but it also confesses its regard. Think about what Christ did here in John chapter 13. Before, we, before Jesus went back to the Father, and, and we find that Jesus Christ took the opportunity to confess His regard for His disciples. He shows them His love. He demonstrates it before He ever goes to the cross. In verse number 3, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God and went to God. Now, why would John insert this here? It's almost a little commentary that, uh, that God inspires John to write here. And this commentary, we're reminded of Christ's status. Jesus Christ is eternal God. He's equal with God the Father, uh, and He's co-eternal. And so we see that Jesus Christ, as, uh, as God then, is about to do something that would shock all of the disciples there that day and so in verse number four he says he riseth from supper laid aside his garments now remind you that these garments were not cheap garments they didn't go to walmart and buy these these were uh, all of one piece remember at the foot of the cross that the soldiers cast lots for the garment because it was of one uh, of high grade they didn't want to split that garment uh, into pieces because it was one solid piece And so he laid aside this robe, if you will, of majesty. What a picture there of what Christ has done for us. He laid aside those things uh, that, that he rightly deserves to come to this earth and was made in the form of a man And he was willing to humble himself and took upon the form of a servant. And then he was willing to bear our sins on the cross. This All in this act here in verse number 4, it's a great symbolism of what God does. As he laid aside his garments, he took a towel, this towel of the servants, and he girded himself. See, after, he says in verse 5, and after they poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. We were talking about this this week, uh, and uh, Sister Jennifer uh, mentioned, you know, uh, she had read or heard or someone talk about, did you ever think about how much time it took to wash 12 people's feet? You know, sometimes in my mind, I think as I read through this passage, I, I just read through it, and I think it took about the same amount of time for Christ to wash the disciples' feet as it did to read through that passage. But the reality is, it probably took a surplus of 20 minutes for Him to go down through there and wash each uh, foot each feet of the disciples as He was willing to just go along and and humble Himself. I can imagine the room was just like a as if a, a, a pin could drop and you could hear it there in that moment. It was such a sweet spirit and a sweet atmosphere. D. A. Carson said with such power and status at his disposal. We might have expected him to defeat the devil in an intimate, immediate, and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. You see, during that time, I'm grateful for shoes that cover my My toes, I I give our missionary brother Daniel, he's in Canada now, but he always wears sandals. You know anybody that always wears sandals? I mean, it's it's 20 degrees outside and he's got sandals on. And I look at him and say, man, I would freeze to death. I I would literally die. I'm pretty sure my toes would fall off somewhere along the way. I'd be like, oh, I need that. Please hang on to that for me. But as they walked through those dusty streets with those sandals on, they, they did so and their feet became dirty. Now there's some great uh, some great things I want to teach you about your faith in Jesus Christ here along the way. But, but first off, before we do, we see that the main story that Christ is trying to gird for us and, and, and illustrate for us is the humility that Christ took. You see, sometimes... We we think of uh, Jesus at the Last Supper and he's sitting at a European-style table, 30 inches tall, 17-inch tall chairs, and they're sitting there with their feet beneath the table. But the reality was they've walked these dusty streets and then they lay down uh, and they they sat at the table and their feet were extended out. Well, guess what? They were near the guy next to him. Well, I don't know about you, but my, my middle schooler will take off his shoes and I'm like, man, get those things away from me. Go wash those things. Well, no one in the room, none of the disciples took the, the opportunity to be able to wash those feet. They were too prideful. They were too busy fighting and, and saying, listen, I'm going to be the second in command. I'm going to sit on the right hand of God. I'm going to have this authority in the kingdom that's coming. Listen, they were too busy infighting among themselves instead of saying, listen, I notice that no one put, uh, there's no servant in the house today. I'll put on that towel. I'll wash those feet. I'll humble myself. And so Jesus Christ did. Matthew chapter 23 and verse 11 says, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. So the God of the universe stooped down and performed this menial task. Instead of being humble, these men debated who's going to be the greatest. But now Jesus Christ was willing to humble himself. Peter, not understanding all that would happen at this moment later through the inspiration of God, wrote in 1 Peter 2.24, "...who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." He understood that Christ laid down His life for us, the just for the unjust. You see, in His first advent, Jesus didn't come as the conquering King, but as that selfless sacrifice for the sins of His people. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26 says, For then must he have often uh, suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, Jesus laid down his life. He became that ultimate sacrifice. And as he knelt before his disciples that day, and he got on his knees and he was willing to wash the feet of the disciples, what he was demonstrating was, Listen, I'm, I'm willing to lay down my life for you. Peter, I love Peter. He, in Peter, we find ourselves, don't we? Peter's response reminds us in verse number, uh, verse number 8 here. He says, Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet, Jesus. He said, Listen, you're Lord, you're God. And as a matter of fact, as he, as he looked at him, he said, You're Lord, you're Adonai, you're the, the Lord of all things. And so you're never going to wash my feet. That should be my job, Jesus. And Jesus reminds him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. And let me remind you the truth about salvation. If you don't come to Christ humbly and put your faith in Him, then you will never experience that cleansing that only happens at the cross. You'll never experience what it is to have a home in heaven because you're not willing to humble yourself before Jesus Christ. And so God offers and extends that to you today. And then verse number 9, Simon Peter, once again, big mouth Simon, he speaks up and says, Lord not my feet only, but also my hands and my neck. And then Jesus teaches another important truth here. He says, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. Now, as we look here, it seems a little bit contradictory, but let me remind you of what has happened. When, when Peter put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, You've been cleansed, you are washed, you are pure. And you know, when I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all my sins were forgiven and forgotten. Psalm chapter 103 he says that he has forgotten my sins they are removed as far as the east is from the west they are forever in the in my past never again to be brought up again by God. And I'm so thankful that we have that kind of assurance in physical terms those who have already bathed do not need to take another bath amen. Every time, think about this, if I take a bath and I walk through the yard and some sandals and my feet get a little dusty, well, then I'm just going to go and I'm going to wash my feet. That's the part that it needs. Well, in my spiritual life, what we see is this picture. As a believer, yeah, I've been cleansed by Jesus Christ. But there's going to be times because I live in a dirty old world and the temptation sometimes draws me away from him that God uh, needs to cleanse that sin. And so he says, if you, uh, if any man uh, sin. We have an advocate with Jesus Christ, the righteous, but he also says in 1 John 1, 9, if we uh, confess our sins, he is faithful and just cleanse us our sins and uh, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God teaches us then that, listen, there's going to be times where maybe you have sinned, but listen, that doesn't mean you've lost your salvation because God has given us a salvation that he keeps and he holds. He is the one that, that offers. He's the one that saves. He's the one that keeps. Nothing can remove that. And as he taught Peter here, he said, listen, you're clean every whit. He says, you don't need anything else. You don't have to wash your head or your hands or anything like that. He says, just that part that you've gotten dirty. But Judas Iscariot, as he points to him, he says, now not all of you have done that. Not all of you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Christ makes one final appeal to Judas, this betrayer. This one that rejected, and he says, listen, there's one final opportunity. What an incredible love that God has for us. You know, may I just speak very candidly? Husbands, this is the way that God calls us to love our wives. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You know, it's easy to be able to say, listen, I'd take a bullet for my family. It's easy to say that. But how about would you lay down your living life for your family? Set aside hobbies and me time and sacrifice those things that are you think are so important so that you could demonstrate to your, life, your, your family in your life your love for Christ and for them. You see, this kind of love is not selfish. It's not looking for opportunities to take, but it is a, a, a selfless love. It's laying aside and sacrificing in life so that children and wife may know that they are loved by us. Listen, if we demonstrate an eternal love in our uh, life, especially for our family, what a difference it makes. That's what Christ did here. Even in this simple act of washing the disciples' feet and putting on this this, uh, towel and picking up the basin and washing the feet of the disciple and being that servant, God reminds us husbands, so be that to your own wives. Go home to your wife today. Open her car door, amen, on the parking lot before you leave the church I was with Sister Maxine this week, and we were able to share Christ with her friend Tammy, and she got saved, and we praise the Lord for that. And as we got back to, the, to her car, she was driving, so I went around the side of the car, and I opened the door up for her. She says, well, I haven't had a man open my door in a long time. <laughs> Listen, love your wives, cherish them, be good to them, demonstrate that level of selflessness. That's what God's done for us. Let me also mention in this last portion that God calls us to respond. Not just see this example, but also live this example. We read in this passage and consider all that it took. It took a long time for them, 24, maybe 30 minutes for them to wash all of that. They had time to contemplate what God had done. And as Christ laid aside the garments of of, uh, His deity and He took on that form of a servant, He taught them a lesson He wanted them to learn. And this is a crucial lesson for us as His disciples. These disciples who were constantly bickering about who was the greatest, if anybody knows my title, if anybody cares about who I am, listen, the Lord of glory was willing to say, listen, I just want to humble myself. I want to take the role of that slow, lowest of the slaves. And, so that, uh, and, and then he says, how can you expect anything less of us? Look in verse 12 in your Bible. It says, so we, after he had washed their feet and taken their, uh, his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know you what I've done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, "Well, for so I am." And then he says this as a gut punch. He says, "If ye then, if I then, your Lord and Master have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet." He calls us Christian to say, "Listen, look at this life of humility. Look what look what I have done. This demonstration and this life of love. He says I was willing to lay down my life, in life and death." What about us today? You see, on the eve of Christ's death, He demonstrated to them an eternal love for the disciples. Not something that was fleeting, not something that was just selfish in nature nor, nor narcissistic, but a love that was eternal. And for Judas, He offered him even one more opportunity to come to Jesus Christ and repent. And He extended to him this eternal love that re- redeemed him from the curse of sin. Today, perhaps you're like Judas. You're here, maybe faking it, just like Judas was in the circle, but he didn't really believe in it. He didn't really trust in Jesus Christ. You can't fake it until you make it with Jesus Christ. He knows the heart. He knows what's going on on the inside. And and, and you might be able to fool a preacher. You might be able to fool your family, but you can't fool God. And I urge you today, before it's eternally too late to come to Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, call upon Him in, in great humility and say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And turn your life over to Him for salvation today. He's extended you one more opportunity. His grace and forgiveness are available to you, but I don't know how much longer it will last. But there's also another valuable lesson for us as believers today. We're like the disciples sometimes. We're vying for that top position. I'll be greater. No, I'll be greater. And we step on each other along the way. We want prestige, maybe the applause of man. And yet this was a curse to the Pharisees and all that went before them. And so God has called us to love as Christ loved, to forgive even when it seems like it's going to kill us, to be willing to lay down our own pride, to pick up the towel of humility, and to serve one another. What's our desire today? May our desire be that we will continue in the vein of Christ until the whole world hears. Would you bow your head?